0: to Mark chapter 14. So we're looking at the concluding chapters of the Gospel of Mark, uh, which focused on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life uh, leading up to his death on the cross. Uh, So we are at Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 53. Let me read these verses for us. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. But again he denied it, and after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, he will deny me three times, and he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders, and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, and led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Some of the most inspiring stories from the history of the church are stories of courage under pressure. Mm -hmm. Stories of people who continue to bear faithful witness to Jesus, even at the cost of their own lives. And there are a large number of these stories from both a long time ago as well as more recently. Uh, The first Christian martyr, uh, the word uh, martyr usually refers to someone who was put to death for their faith in. Christ. The first Christian martyr, whose story we know, uh, was Stephen, whose story is told in the Book of Acts. He was put to death in Jerusalem. And then as Christianity spread, many of the apostles were martyred. Uh, But it wasn't only church leaders. Many ordinary Christians were martyred during periodic episodes of persecution. So uh, around 200 AD, there were two young women in their early 20s, a young mother named Perpetua and a pregnant slave named Felicity, and they were put to death in North Africa. Uh, for their steadfast confession of faith in Jesus. Um, uh, in more modern times, you might have heard of Jim Elliott and his four friends who were killed by the Alka Indians in South America, or Dieter, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed by the Nazis, or in 2015, the 21 Coptic Christians who were kidnapped and beheaded by ISIS on the beach in Libya. Now, these stories, on the one hand, are disturbing and horrifying. They display the horrors of human evil, uh, but on the other hand, they're inspiring as examples of courage under pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and many of these people who died praying, literally praying for those who were killing them. That's right. Um, and sometimes that prayer was answered. Uh, sometimes even very, very soon. Uh, but you know, I think for many of us, I think we might hear these stories, but they feel rather remote from our daily experience as Christians. Mm-hmm. Right? Most of us have not been actually threatened with torture or imprisonment or death right. simply for believing and saying that we believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. We can be thankful for that. Uh, but I think that we all do face pressure, even if the pressures are much Relatively lighter or more subtle. Where do we face pressure? Perhaps pressure to lie and cover up the truth so we don't feel embarrassed. Or pressure to take someone's side, even if we know that what they're doing isn't quite right. Or pressure to fit in with the group, even at the cost of sacrificing integrity. Mm-hmm. And uh, the history of the church is not only a collection of sort of heroic stories of courage under pressure. There are also many examples where Christians have faltered (coughs) under pressure, sometimes under much less pressure than the martyrs face. And the passage we're looking at this morning shows us both of these things. It shows Jesus displaying courage under great pressure, and it shows us Peter faltering under much less pressure. Now, if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, and you sort of come to this uh, section that we read this morning uh, and you sort of look at it and you're trying to make sense of it you might notice a few things first you might notice that the passage focuses primarily on jesus's trials uh, before the religious leaders and the political leaders of his day uh, so first jesus is brought before the council in verse 53 to 65 this is the jewish council also known as the sanhedrin and they exercise authority primarily over religious matters Uh, But then you see that Jesus is also brought before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea, and he exercised authority over uh, political matters. Uh, So you sort of might notice, okay, there's these two trials. Jesus is brought before two, a group of people, and then the governor. uh, And Jesus behaves in a similar way in both trials. Mm -hmm. Did you notice in both trials, he's unexpectedly silent. Verses 16 and 61, the high priest asked, Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And it says, Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And then verses 4 and 5, Pilate asked Jesus the exact same question, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But again, Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. So he's unexpectedly silent, but you also might notice that he makes one key statement. In response to a direct question. So if you have a Bible with red letters, where the words of Jesus are in red letters, uh, this is this will be very clear. Uh, you'll see that these are, uh, in fact, the only red letters in this section, except people remember something Jesus has said previously. But verse 62 and verse 2 are Jesus' two statements. So, Mark's showing us something important about Jesus by how he behaves during his two trials. So that's the first thing we're going to consider is what we learn about Jesus from how he behaves during his trials. But the other thing you might notice if you're reading this section is that in the middle of Jesus' two trials is this account of Peter's three denials. And in fact, Mark switches back and forth multiple times between Jesus and Peter. So verse 53, Jesus is led to the high priest. He's brought inside the high priest's house. Verse 54 mentions that Peter is outside in the courtyard. Then, verse 55-65, focus on Jesus' trial, indoors before the council. 66-72, to 72, go back to Peter. Verse 66 says he's below in the courtyard, so uh, the council must have been meeting on perhaps the second floor or a floor level of the high priest's house. having uh, I mean, do idea. Okay, we'll Pray it doesn't get worse. <laughs> uh, and we'll do the
1: best we can in
0: the meantime. Um, so Jesus is led off to Pilate where he's put on trial again. So you see these two stories are sort of woven together. It's sort of like a movie where there's two scenes that alternate back and forth with two different sets of characters. One's it over here, one's it over here, but the whole story is building to one climax. And they're not just two random. Uh, stories going along, but they're they're connected to each other. Um, and whenever this happens in Mark, you uh, want to ask, okay, what is the connection? Mm-hmm. Right now, of course, you could say, well, Mark's just telling it this way because that's how it happened historically, which is true. Right, these things. You know, Peter was standing in the courtyard while Jesus was inside. Uh, but often, Mark weaves together two stories to make an intentional contrast. There's a thematic reason why they're woven together, as well as a historical or chronological reason. Uh, so uh, the connection you might notice is Jesus is on trial officially, Peter's on trial unofficially. Jesus faces great pressure, Peter faces less pressure, and Jesus stands firm, and Peter doesn't. All right. So that's the second question we're going to focus on. First question is, what do we learn about Jesus? Through how he behaves in this trial. second question is, what should we learn from this contrast between Jesus standing firm and Peter falling and failing? Okay, so first question, what do we learn about Jesus from how he behaves during his trials? Uh, again, the two notable aspects of Jesus' behavior are his unexpected silence and his direct answers. So why was Jesus silent before his accusers? Now, sometimes Defendants in court are silent because they're guilty and they know it. Or they're trying to be clever, right? They plead the fifth. And whenever you hear somebody pleaded the fifth, we don't always think positively of that, right? Because sometimes they're just trying to worm their way out and not plead guilty so they can bargain and maybe get off on a lesser charge. Um... Or sometimes people are silent uh, because they're angry and sullen, or because they're arrogant and condescending, or because they're fearful and insecure. But Jesus was none of those things. That's true. He wasn't trying to hide anything. That's right. And in fact, he had spoken openly, both in Galilee and in Jerusalem. Verse 49, which we read last week, Jesus says, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. Jesus wasn't hiding anything. And also, Jesus wasn't reluctant to answer questions. He didn't shut people down. In chapter 12, the temple leaders had approached Jesus with one question after another. It was a whole day full of questions. And Jesus engaged them all and answered them all. So Jesus didn't just shut people down if they expressed a little disagreement with him or had some questions for him. He didn't just refuse to talk to them. Uh, he didn't only talk with people who already agreed with him. Jesus talked with all kinds of people. Yep. here, Jesus remained silent in the face of irrational hostility and false accusations. Uh, Ecclesiastes says there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Mm. And, you know, if you're dealing with people who are deeply hostile, and they're just ready to twist anything you say and use it against you, and unwilling to listen to any reasonable argument, sometimes the wise surprise <coughs> is to keep quiet. That's right. To not say much. Should I try that one? i walking away from the podium. I'm wondering if it's losing connection. Okay. Like, okay. I can come down here. I'll try that. What, you won't have an issue down here, so I'm gonna no, try sure. to come down here. Um, all these things happen on Sundays and they don't happen when we try it out <laughs> in the middle of the week. Anyway, uh, Okay, so let's try this. Uh, so if you're dealing right, if you're dealing with people who are deeply hostile, sometimes the wisest approach is keep quiet, don't say much. That's right. Right? Because there's not going to be any benefit to saying a lot. And that's really what's going on here. So if you look at verses fifty-five to fifty-nine. Uh, There are sort of three times where they're trying to get Jesus, and they don't. So, verse 55, the whole council was seeking testimony against Jesus, but they found none. Verse 56, many bore false witness, but their testimony didn't agree. 57-59, some stood up and bore false witness, but yet even about this, verse 59, their testimony didn't agree. Now, verse 58, their accusation contained a partial truth. you read what they say in verse 58... Uh, Jesus had talked about the physical temple in Jerusalem being uh, brought down and a new and better temple arising. So we've seen that in the last few weeks. But here's the thing. Jesus never threatened to physically destroy the temple in Jerusalem. That's right. He said that God would do that in an act of judgment. Um, So here they are. They're all trying their hardest to throw accusations against Jesus, but none of them stick. And uh, in the Old Testament, uh, one of the requirements to establish any legal charge against someone was that there had to be multiple witnesses who agreed. That's right. So nobody could ever be uh, especially condemned to death, or even sometimes given a lesser punishment, on the testimony of only one witness. And so, uh, Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, only on the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, shall a charge be established. Yes. So Jesus refuses to respond to these hostile and conflicting accusations against him, because there aren't even any that meet the standard of a legal charge. That's right. Uh, And by remaining silent, Jesus demonstrated that he was the suffering and innocent servant of God. Yes. He behaved exactly as the prophet Isaiah had said right. that the suffering servant would. I can read these verses earlier where it said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So Jesus' silence here displays his innocence and his confidence in God. Uh, So that's what we see from Jesus' silence. But what about from Jesus' statements? Uh, Jesus was generally silent, but he wasn't absolutely silent. In each of Jesus' trials, he answered one direct question. Uh, Look at verse 61 and 62 to begin with. The high priest asked, are you the Christ? That word means the Messiah, the Anointed One. The Son of the Blessed. Now, Jews, uh, back then as well as now, avoid saying the actual name of God. So the Son of the Blessed, they would sometimes say the Blessed One, or the Eternal One, or the Powerful One. As that, that all just refers to God. It's just a way of referring to God without saying the Lord's actual name uh, in Hebrew. So, uh, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? That's the question Jesus is being asked. And Jesus gives a very clear, direct answer. I am. Mm. And you will see the Son of Man, Jesus has referred to himself in that way many times, seated at the right hand of power, that is of God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And now that statement referred to two uh, well-known Old Testament passages uh, that people would the, the religious leaders would have been very familiar with back then. So one of these is Psalm 110, verse 1, which speaks about the Messiah, the Son of David, sitting at the right hand of God. The idea is ruling over the universe. And then the second passage is Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, which speaks about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, exercising divine authority and power. So Jesus says, I am the Messiah and the Son of God. He quotes two Old Testament passages in reference to himself as the one who will judge the entire world and rule over all things. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus directly, explicitly, unambiguously declares himself to be the Son of God. Now, you might say, well, why did Jesus wait so long? Right? Uh, now, we've said all along, Mark wrote his gospel to address three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? And Mark's answer to the first two questions is this. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. Amen. And why did he come? He came to be the suffering Savior. So that's sort of the main theme of Mark's gospel. Jesus is the Son of God, and he came to be the suffering Savior. Uh, but it's only as Jesus' mission... To be the suffering Savior becomes clear that his identity as the Son of God becomes equally clear. Okay, so that's why in the earlier chapters of Mark's Gospel, Jesus sort of keeps his true identity a, a, a little bit under wraps. Now, he does all kinds of things that only God is supposed to do. Right? It wasn't that Jesus was confused about who he was. When Jesus was baptized in chapter 1, the Father said, you're my beloved Son, and you are well paid. Jesus knew who he was the whole time. Uh, but, in the early chapters of Mark's Gospel, Jesus said, it's not the time to proclaim this to everybody everywhere yet. So, sometimes the evil spirits would cry out, and they would say, you're the Son of God! And Jesus would say, be quiet! <laughs> sometimes Jesus would do a mighty miracle, like raising someone, like raising a dead person to life, and he would tell the people who saw it, don't tell anybody else what we just saw. Hmm. Or, Jesus asked Peter, in chapter 8, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Mm. And then he takes his disciples up the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter, James, and John see him in his glory, and they hear the Father's voice saying, this is my beloved son. And they're walking down the mountain, and Jesus says, don't tell anyone what you just saw until I rise from the dead. Amen. They didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. So you might be asking this question, why does Jesus conceal his true identity for so long? It's not because he was unsure about who he was. Now notice he never told any of these people you're wrong. Right. Or I might not be the son of God. Right. right? He never he, they're right. They're all they're all right. They're all correct in what they're saying. He just says it's not the time to tell everybody everywhere because they will misunderstand. That's right. And because I haven't just come to show that I'm the Son of God, I've also come to be the suffering Savior. Yes. Because that's the only way that I'm going to rescue my people and provide for them what they really need. Mm-hmm. And so now, when Jesus is arrested, bound, and facing his hostile mm-hmm. accusers, now he declares the truth that he has kept under wraps for so long. Mm-hmm. Because he knows that he's about to go to the cross. It's less than 24 hours away. And so, he says it very freely and a what's been true of all. You see, he's the son of God, and he's the suffering savior, and that becomes clear as, um, as he's going to the cross. Uh, and it will become clear when he's hanging on the cross. Somebody says, truly this man was the son of God. We'll get there in a couple weeks. So, do you have a clear answer to the high priest's question? Yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. <sighs> but and I'm going to switch okay. and pull that one okay. over and see if that helps. I'm going to turn this off. Got it. <sighs> How's that? Can, uh, are we on? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, worst comes to worst, we'll turn off all the mics and I'll talk loud. So I can talk loud All right. But this is the last thing we're going to try. Uh, <laughs> verse 2. Okay. Jesus' question in the trial before Pilate. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And notice Jesus' response. You say so. Huh. What kind of a response is that, you might think. He doesn't say, yes, I am. And he doesn't say, no, I'm not. He gives a response that's intentionally a bit ambiguous. You might say, why? Well, in the context of his hearing before the religious leaders, Jesus asked a religious question. Who are you? Are you the Messiah and the Son of God? The one the scriptures speak about. And Jesus says, yes, that's exactly who I am. But here, before Pilate, Jesus is asked, a question with a political implication, are you the king of the Jews? He was being accused of a political crime, and you can know this by looking down to chapter 15, verse 26, because it says the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So here's the thing, the Jewish leaders who accused Jesus of blasphemy, they don't bring Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, and say, he's blaspheming and dishonoring our God and therefore you should execute him. Because Pilate would have said, I don't even believe in your God, and that's not in my jurisdiction, and I don't really care what he says. That's a religious matter. You deal with that. They came to Pilate and said, he's seditious. He's uh, undermining the authority of the emperor. And Pilate would listen to that, because Pilate's like, oh, Well, the emperor is a couple steps above me, and if somebody's going against him, then I better deal with it, otherwise I'm going to face the heat if there's an uprising. So, the chief priests bring Jesus to Pilate, and they say, he's guilty of sedition. He's a danger to the stability of the empire. And so Pilate asks Jesus, are you guilty of what these men say? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you claiming to be someone who has a higher authority than I do as the Roman governor of Judea? Now, on the one hand, the answer is no, because Jesus isn't trying to immediately, violently overthrow the Roman government like other people were. He wasn't claiming to be the king of the Jews in that sense. On the other hand, he was claiming to be the Messiah, which means the anointed king, and the king in the line of David. He wasn't claiming to be king of the Babylonians, right? So, that's why Jesus couldn't simply say yes or no to Pilate's question, because the answer was no, but yes. Right? And that's why his answers the way that he does. Do you see Jesus' faithful testimonies of the truth, even under intense pressure? His self-control, his confidence demonstrated in his silence, his boldness and precision demonstrated in his answers. Mark is showing us Jesus passed the test. He was a faithful witness to the truth. He displayed courage, even under intense pressure. That's what Mark wants us to see about Jesus. But that leads us to the second question, which I'll answer a little more briefly. What about the contrast? What are we supposed to take away from the contrast between Jesus, who's faithful under pressure, and Peter, who falters under pressure. Peter wasn't being threatened uh, with any legal consequences. He wasn't being hauled before a court and accused of a crime. He was just being questioned and accused by a servant girl and a few bystanders uh, in a dark courtyard on a cold night. I mean, it's like the difference between being summoned to testify before the Supreme Court and being asked a curious question by a server in a restaurant And then the server turns to the next table and says, do you hear what he just said? Right? Peter's in much more like the second situation. Now here's the thing. Sometimes people read this passage and they think, here's the takeaway. Be like Jesus. Be courageous and strong no matter how much pressure you have to face and don't be like Peter who was a coward. But I actually don't think that's the main point of this contrast. Here's why. Jesus did not say, I came to earth in order to be the best moral example you've ever seen to motivate all of you to try harder and do a little better. If that was Jesus' primary mission, he didn't succeed. (laughs) Judas, one of the twelve, handed Jesus over and never looked back The other 11 disciples all ran away and fled. And here Peter, the recognized leader of the 12 apostles, totally flops. So if Jesus' primary purpose in coming to earth was to be a moral example and influence, he didn't succeed. Mm -hmm. But what did Jesus say his primary purpose was in coming to earth? Mark chapter 2 verse 17, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You okay. see, Jesus came to give his life so that people who couldn't make ourselves right before God mm-hmm. could be forgiven and set free. Yes, People who couldn't make up for our many failures could be welcomed and received in God's family. You see, what Mark wants us to see is that there's only one Savior. Amen. There's only one Son of God. Yes. It's not Peter. It's not any of the disciples. It's not you. It's not me. It's only Jesus. Amen. At the end of Jesus' life, everyone else sort of fades away, and Mark sort of turns the spotlight on Jesus, and you see that he's the only one who's faithful to the end. Yes. He's the only one who's worthy of being worshipped as the Son of God as the suffering Savior. We're saved by Jesus' obedience and Jesus' faithfulness, not by our obedience and our faithfulness. Mm -hmm. In the book of Revelation, it describes Jesus Christ as the faithful witness. You see, it's not by our own willpower, just by trying to do better, but instead it's by the Spirit of Jesus coming to live within us that we can become faithful witnesses to the truth about Jesus. You see, here's the thing, if the Spirit of Jesus comes to live within you, then yes, you will weep, like Peter does here in verse 72. You'll weep over the times when you've given in to ungodly pressures. When you've followed Jesus, but only at a distance. Did you notice how that described Peter? In verse 54, it says, Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Uh And then the first person asks him, and he says no, and it says that he went into the gateway. and sort of went further into the shadows. You see, that's, that's how Peter's behaving here. And when the Spirit of Jesus comes to live within us, then we will weep over those times when we've sort of distanced ourselves against Jesus and stayed in the shadows or even denied Him by our words or our actions. But we'll recognize that those circumstances only expose the pride in our hearts, thinking we know better than God, or the fear in our hearts. We more worry about what others will think of us than they are about what God thinks of us. See, Peter failed majorly here. But the good news is, God wasn't done with Peter. That's right. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter would one day become one of those faithful witnesses to Jesus who displayed courage under pressure. And in fact, the story about Peter is that he was eventually crucified upside down yeah. That's right. for his faith in Jesus. That's right. Um, and uh, that's not recorded in the scripture, but there's a reference in John chapter 21 that seems to refer to that. So it seems to affirm that that's true. Uh, but here's, uh, here's what Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 13. He says, be on your guard for the delivery over to councils. Just like Jesus stood before the council here. And you'll be beaten in synagogue. You'll stand before governors and kings. Just like Jesus stood before Pilate here. For my sake to bear witness before them. And when they bring you to trial. And deliver you over. Don't be anxious beforehand. What you're to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak. But the Holy Spirit. Yes. That's the promise Jesus gives. Is that the Holy Spirit will be with you. Mm-hmm. When you are facing pressure. Whether it's those little kinds of pressure that can sometimes make us trip and fall, or whether it's the really big tests that we can't completely prepare for might my You know, I think for most of us, the question that's worth pondering is not, how would I behave if I were in an extreme situation on trial, and if I said yes, I believed in Jesus, then I would lose my life. I think the more important question for us is how do I navigate the pressures of everyday life that are facing me tomorrow or this afternoon? The pressure to fit in, the pressure to escape embarrassment, the pressure to please an intimidating person. One person wrote, faithful witness to Jesus is most important and most easily betrayed in simple and ordinary actions and words. So let's pray that we might be a people who display courage under pressure. Not because we're trying harder to imitate Jesus, but because we will receive His Spirit and we're living out of the power of the Spirit within us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness all the way to the end of your life. We thank you for your faithful testimony. and We thank you for the wisdom that you displayed in your silence as well. We pray you give us the sermon, when to be silent and when to speak. Give us your self-control When we are tempted to word out unhelpful things, give us your courage to speak what is true and helpful, even when we feel afraid. Help us to become people who display courage under pressure. And above all, that we would worship you alone as as the Son of God, as our Savior and Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.